Well, welcome to Rock Valley Bible Church. Uh, I'm pleased to be opening the word with you guys this morning. Um, We're going to continue working through the themes of Advent this week uh, as we've had four separate men preaching through the four separate themes of Advent. Um, I'll be working through the topic of joy this week. Just a brief introduction or to kind of continue to build where we are coming from in this theme of Advent. Advent is this time that we celebrate during the Christmas season that we don't only look back at what Christ was done, has done for us in the coming of earth, coming to be born and ultimately die for us, but we simultaneously look forward and we anxiously anticipate the second coming of Christ. Um, so that's really how Advent is different than just celebrating Christmas. So as we do this, this Advent season, we heard a message two weeks ago on the theme of hope. That was our first Sunday in Advent was hope. And uh, Ryan Brown preached a sermon on how not only do we have hope in Christ, but he is the sustainer of our hope. Uh, he pulled out the rich analogy in Hebrews of Christ being the anchor of our hope that holds us fast. Then last week, Troy Bedgood preached on the topic of peace. That was our second Sunday in Advent. And talking about how Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, was the one who, through his death, brought us peace. And so we, se- we felt that, that we have peace now through what Christ did, but we feel this tension. We don't always feel hope. We don't always feel peace. And so that's where, in this season of Advent, we look back at what Christ did, but yet we simultaneously, anxiously await and look forward to the second coming of Christ when we will experience hope and peace, and as we'll talk about today, joy more fully. So this third week, we're going to look at the theme of joy, and then next week, Steve Brandon will be back preaching for us, um, and he'll do our fourth theme of Advent, love. So as I was thinking about joy this past week and thinking about what topic, well, really longer than this last week, but um, thinking about what topic, what passage of scripture can we really pull out joy? And uh, joy is mentioned over 200 times, or the themes of joy, whether it be rejoice or have joy, um, but it's mentioned over 200 times in the Bible. It's a reoccurring theme again and again and again. And um, I've been in this for the last few months. We've been going over the book of Philippians with the teens on Wednesday nights. And we've, recurrent, we've seen that recurring theme of having joy in spite of sufferings. We've been doing devotions with our kids going through the book of Philippians. And so, as I was thinking about where to go, I I almost pulled a message from Philippians, but I really wanted to pull out this tension that we feel in Advent of this already but not yet, feeling that Christ has come but not feeling the completeness of our joy until his second coming. So we won't be there, but I think Philippians is a great book that helps define for us what is joy. And as we talked about this in youth group, the reoccurring word that we came up with was happiness. But we came to the conclusion that happiness is kind of this high-floating idea. It doesn't have this deep root inside of it that joy really does. So, Austin, I need your help. Our devotions, they said joy is not just happiness, but it's what? Um, 
It's this deep, warm, hug-happy is what our kids' devotional came with, which that kind of cheapens the meaning of joy. It's more than this hug, but it's this deep-rooted joy and happiness that comes from our soul as a result and from the Holy Spirit as a result of what we see in Christ. So we see joy in the first coming of Christ. The angels brought the message and they said, I bring you good news of great joy. And that's exactly what it was. It was great joy. And we see that the root of our joy is in God. It's in Christ. It was in him coming. It is in him coming. But if Christ came and he brought the good news of great joy, then why don't we always experience joy? Why don't we always feel joyous? And that's kind of that tension that I hope to kind of sit in, just wrestle and acknowledge that even though Christ has come and we have joy because of Christ coming and in Christ we have joy, why don't we always feel joy? And we're going to acknowledge some of this tension of where we're at, this already but not yet. Christ already came, but yet we don't experience the fullness of what he's done. And we're going to do that in the book of Zephaniah. So if you haven't found that yet, turn there. Um, Zephaniah is a little uh, book towards the end of the Old Testament. If you're using a Bible, uh, I find the easiest way to find it is find Matthew and go back just a couple of pages. Um, it's on page 790 in the Pew Bible. And this is a great time just to remind you that if you don't have a Bible, write your name in the Pew Bible, take it home. Um, everybody should have a Bible at home with them. So 790, and we're going to be in Zephaniah. And as is um, sometimes difficult when we're reading through some of the Old Testament books, particularly some of these uh, prophecies, is to see how does this apply to us today as Christians living in 2018. This was a prophecy that was given to Judah. This was a prophecy that was done centuries ago. And so I'm just going to kind of walk us through the book a little bit and hopefully start out by explaining why this is pertinent to us today. Uh, so the book of Zephaniah in um, ver chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah during the reign of Josiah, king of Judah. Josiah was a king. He became king at a young age and had intentions of rebuilding the temple. And through that process, stumbled upon the law began reading it and began reforming it, uh, Judah. At that time, they began to read the law and began to reform, turn away from idols, things of that nature. But we still see this prophecy that came. And the basis of the book of Zephaniah in the first three and a half chapters is a prophecy of coming destruction, coming wrath of God on not only the nation of Judah, but the nations around Judah. And we see that that was the main gist of this book. Chapter 2, verse 3, there is a call to, those, to, the, to the people of Judah to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness, and seek humility. And we see that those who do not are going to incur the judgment of God. We see this tension between God and man, in this anger that God has for man, that he is no longer going to tolerate sin, and there is wrath and destruction that will come. There's a big turn in chapter 3, verse 9, and we're going to spend our time again in that portion. But chapter 3, verse 9, where we see that the wrath of God 
for those who heed the call in chapter 2 to seek humility, seek righteousness, and seek the Lord, that they won't experience the full wrath of God, but they'll experience the refining fire of God in their lives. And so we see this tension in strife in verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9, begin to dissolve. And there's a lot of language in here speaking to Israel and speaking to Judah and speaking to Zion. And in case we don't feel that we can feel like the prophet is talking to us here, uh, Galatians 3, 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, men of faith. So we see here that... We here in 2018 are grafted in, Gentiles grafted in to the the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And so what we see here in verse 9 through the end of the chapter is we see as a result of the first coming of Christ, strife beginning to dissolve away and how God's doing this last in our lives. And then at the end of the chapter, how that's all comes to fruition at the consummation of the age, Christ's second coming. So let's read Zephaniah chapter three, and I'll read verse nine through the end of the chapter. It says, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the river of Cush, my worshipers the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me for then i will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain but i will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly they shall seek refuge in the name of the lord Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice, exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord." So here we see in Zephaniah 3 that God is transforming for himself a unified, purified nation. So as we go through the second half of the chapter, there's two main points that I'm going to pull out here. 
and with some sub-points below those. But the two main points, the first main point being that strife dissolves. We see strife dissolving. And that's where I get the first half of my message, that strife dissolves. And then in the second half, we'll see how we're left as that strife dissolves with joy. So strife dissolves to joy. There's several stunning promises in verse 9 through 13 about strife dissolving. But before we get there, I think it, it does us well to think about strife that we have, conflict that we have. We are in a world that conflict is ever-present. I think if there's not more conflict now than there, never, than there ever has been before, it's certainly more at the forefront of our eyes. I think about this last week in just reading through news feeds or Facebook that pops across my phone. I see conflict every single day, whether it's conflict with race, whether it's conflict in politics, whether it's conflict about, I just read something yesterday about border control and the conflict around our nation. We are immersed in conflict. It is all around us. And what we're going to see is how this strife, this conflict that we have, ultimately the conflict that we have with God who can't view or tolerate our sin is being dissolved. So if we look at the text, the first way that we see that our strife or our conflict will dissolve is that we will have transformation of speech or a transformed speech. So the first subpoint under strife dissolved is that we'll have a transformed speech. Look at verse 9. It says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. We know that speech is certainly something that causes strife. I think of a childhood adage that I've even said to my kids, and thinking about this makes me kind of think maybe I shouldn't, but sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me, right? Yeah, I've even told my kids, and it's well-intentioned, like have this thick skin. But as I was thinking about this, uh, words are really hurtful. When I think about what the power of words can do, I think of times when I've had misguided words that have hurt me to the point where I think a broken bone maybe would have been easier. You know, like six weeks in a cast and then it's done, doesn't linger, it doesn't affect me anymore. The Bible speaks to this, to the power of misguided speech, the power of words, both in the positive and the negative. We see in Proverbs 15.1, we were just talking about this in my house yesterday, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Or Proverbs 11.9, evil words destroy one's friends, wise discernment rescues the godly. Or Proverbs 15.4, gentle words bring life and health, a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Words are powerful, both for good and for bad. So we see here that the speech of the people is transforming to a pure speech. We know that there is life-giving power in words. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4.1, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for the building up as it fits the occasion, so it gives grace to all who hear heard the first half of that verse quoted all the time. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But the real richness in that verse, the real 
the real gem to pull out of that verse is how speech can be used to give grace to all who hear. We really see the life-giving power of transformed, pure speech. But yet we feel the sting of sin. Our speech isn't there yet. We feel this tension that we have transformed hearts, then why don't we have this transformed speech? Jesus said it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. See, there's a relation between a transformed heart and between transformed speech. But yet we live in this time where even though what Christ has done has been completed and those who have faith in him have transformed hearts, we still feel this tension that our speech isn't there. We don't have this perfect, pure speech, says everyone who was around anybody in their family this week. Husbands, wives, kids, we've all felt the sting of non-transformed, non-impure speech. And that's the tension that I hope to sit in this morning of this already but not yet. Christ has come, but yet we still feel the sting of sin in this world. So the second way that the, the, the passage here shows that strife is dissolving is we see that shame will be removed. We see shame fading away. It says in verse 11, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Shame is something that we certainly all feel. It's kind of ironic. We're probably somewhat shameful about the shame that we have. But we all have it. And we see here that shame, that on that day you will not be put to shame. We see this strife, this shame that dissolves away. Shame's a result of sin. Shame's a result of guilt that we have for our sin. How many times do we sin and we do the same sin over again just to confess it to God and say, never again, Lord, will I do this? And then what happens? We do it again, and it comes. We are fallen. We are affected by sin. Even though we have transformed hearts, we still sin, and we experience shame about this. It's the process, the slow process of sanctification. It's the sting we feel from sin that's here. Christ came. He did bring us salvation, but yet we feel the sting of sin. We groan with all creation, like it says in Romans 8, longing for something beyond this world, longing for something beyond this as our strife dissolves. And we see the result of that not until the second coming of Christ. And so we anxiously await for the second coming. And that's this already but not yet tension that's here in the third chapter of Zephaniah. So the last way that we see strife dissolve as we see pride dissolved to humility. The third sub-point under strife dissolving is pride dissolves to humility. Verse 11 says, starting in the second half of verse 11, For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. We know that in Christianity, there is no room for pride. For it said, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Yet we still feel pride with things. And we know that in Christianity, if you think about it, what is inherent in us being Christians 
is humility. Think of how you get to the point of fully depending on God. You come to this point where you realize that you're in this deep, dark hole. That you deserve death and you deserve sin. And you sit there and you look at yourself and say, I am absolutely hopeless. I am absolutely helpless. There is nothing that I can do to rectify this problem of sin that I have. And I have to look for somebody else, for a savior to rescue me from this. If that's not humbling, I don't know what is. But yet we still feel Pride. How many times when you think about good things that happen in your life and the first thought in your mind is to think about how it's because of something you did, whether it be a job promotion and we think about, oh, it's because I worked hard and because I stayed late and because I, whatever it is, or whether it's a good family, my kids obeyed, it's because I'm this great leader and I start to have pride. We start to have pride about these things. We start to see ourselves as the result of the good things in our lives. But with Christianity, there's no place for pride. We can look at ourselves as being athletically talented or gifted. I think of high school. That was a big thing for me to think I'm this, I work hard and that's why I'm good. But there's no place for pride. The text calls us to see every good thing humbly as seeing God as the result for those things. So we're called when we see good things in our life to praise the name of Jesus for it, to not look to ourselves for this, to not see ourselves as being proud or arrogant. And that's, that is something that is difficult, but God will not allow us to have any part in his glory for what he's doing in our lives. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. This is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. It is his. So what does the text say remains after God, the, the humble, the, the arrogant, the pride is dissolved? What remains? It says the humble and the lowly remain. So we feel this tension here where we're in this already but not yet. We realize that we're living in a world that we have a Savior who has come. His work on the cross is complete. When he said it is finished, that was not an overstatement. It is finished. It has been completed. But yet we feel the strife. We feel the difficulty of impure speech. We feel the strife of pride. We feel the strife of shame. We feel it in our relationships with those around us. We feel it in our relationship with God. But we know that God is working in us. He's refining us through this process of sanctification. He's dissolving away strife. And as he does this, we're left with joy. We lit the third candle of Advent this week, the joy candle. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. 
I love the language that's here of daughter Jerusalem, daughter Zion. You get this tender picture of a dad talking to his daughter, tenderly telling her what is right, what she should do. There's commands here to rejoice, exult with all of your heart. And why? Because of what has been done, because of this process of dissolving away strife, this sanctification process, and then what we'll see as we work through the, pa- uh, the passage, that the second coming of Christ. But I think it, it, it does us well to stop here for a second and look at the first command in verse 14. Sing aloud. Part of our joy is in singing. God created us as people who are touched by music. I don't completely understand why or how or what it is, but we see this again and again through scripture in singing. And we see this in our lives. I think of how singing can really ingrain things into our mind. I think of our kids in those little CC songs that they sing over and over and over again. And some of them that haven't been sung in our house for years But if you ask them about Columbus, they'll come up with this little jingle that comes out about Columbus. And it's something about music that God uses that our hearts and minds respond to music. Or if I am going to gear up and work out or go for a long run, or you go to the gym and you see people working out, what do they all have on? They've all got earbuds in. I can just turn on music that I typically listen to when I go running and my heart rate just starts beating. And it's like I get ready and I get ramped up. Or athletes before a big game and they listen to music and it just, music has a way of not only stirring our minds, but it stirs our hearts. And when we use it to have joy to God, it has this great way of connecting our mind and our heart to allow our full body to just rejoice in sing and who God is and what he's done for us. Sometimes you lose your spot in your notes. So we see here our head and our heart are connected through song. We're called to sing aloud. We're called to rejoice and exult with all of our heart. You might ask why. Why are we to sing? Why are we to have this joy? Why are we exalting God with all of our heart? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. Look down at verse 15. It says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst and you shall never again fear evil. Did you guys hear that? The Lord has taken away your judgments against you. That is amazing. That's true right now if you believe in Christ. That is what we have We have judgments that have been taken away from us. That's not something we're waiting for the second age. We're waiting for Christ to come so that way our judgments are taken. That is something that is true right now. I think of 
when I die and I go and I stand before Christ, and I don't know, this is just my mind that pictures it. This isn't theologically sound, but I think that it works here. And so just, just don't scrutinize this completely, okay? But I think of standing before God, knowing that my judgments have taken, been taken away, and him looking at me and seeing me as just dripping and drenched with the blood of Christ. And him looking at me and saying, you are holy, not because of what I've done. You are spotless. You are blameless, not because of what I've done, but because what Christ did, what has been completed before this time right now and is true for me today. And if that's not reason to have joy, I don't know what is. The command here is to have joy because that is true now. Our judgments have been removed. But yet we live in this time where we don't always feel that joy. We still do have some fears. At the end of verse 15, it says we don't have to fear evil. Our judgments have been taken away. We don't have to fear evil. This last week, I, I know this, I've been in this text that I know I don't have to fear evil, but I did. We still live in a fallen world. Austin had a mole on the bottom of his toe, and he's had this stinking mole for, since the day he was born. And over the last two or three months, this thing just starts growing. And it's atypical, and I, being a nurse practitioner, I know just enough to basically get nervous about everything, so it's not a great thing. But I feared melanoma. We know that. There's things in this world. We still live in a world that has, feels the sting of sin, even though knowing that my judgments have been taken away, that the Lord has taken them away, we still live in this fallen world. We still fear things like melanoma. Now, by God's grace, we biopsied and it was normal, so we don't fear that anymore. But So we rejoice that our punishment has been removed, and we don't fear evil like those who don't have hope. And why do we not fear evil? If we look at verse 17, it says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, another translation is the New American Standard Bible. And they, I, I like how it translates it better. It translates rather than a mighty one is a victorious warrior. Why don't we have to have fear? Because our God is a victorious warrior. I don't know what you think about in your mind when you think a victorious warrior. Um, we had just a few weekends ago in the father-son retreat... Um, we were, the boys were all thinking they were macho and wrestling each other and doing these little battle royales. And that led us to pulling up some videos of Bruce Lee and some of the amazing things that he can do. And I think of, you know, somebody like that, that's a victorious warrior or, um, another person that's been coming into our household recently. I don't know who it came from, but John Cena is apparently some WWE guy. And I think he gets it. But he's, so I looked up a picture of him, and this guy that's got, like, just, it goes from his head to his shoulders, and, like, there's no neck. It just, like, comes straight down. I think of a victorious warrior being somebody like that, or my ultimate favorite victorious warrior, 
Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris is the victorious warrior that I think of. But when we put any of those guys in their list of things that they've done that could make us think about them as being victorious warriors, and you put Jesus next to it, in the one thing that he has on his resume that he can just look and kind of laugh at them in comparison, it's like, I conquered death. He conquered death. Our God is a victorious warrior who has conquered death. If we think about that, that that is something that is absolute reason of why we don't have fear. That's a reason of why we sing and rejoice in him. Our God is a victorious warrior. It says in verse 17 that he takes delight in you. If we keep reading in verse 17, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Our God, who is a victorious warrior, will exult over you with loud singing. Have you ever thought of what would happen if God was singing? I don't know what to compare it to. I don't know what it looks like. I think back to creation in the spoken word of God. And he says, let there be light. And just, boom, it happens. Or just at his spoken word, that dry land and water separate. Or that in the spoken word, the amazing creation of a human body is just formed. What happens when our God sings? I don't know. Maybe the second coming. But he's singing over you, his chosen, precious child whose judgments he's taken away. And that we have joy. That causes us to sing for joy. I know my initial reaction when I think about God singing over me is thinking that that can't happen. I'm far too guilty. I have far too much baggage, far too much sin that God could have joy in me. I'm not perfect. To that, the text says in verse 15, the Lord has taken away your judgments. God sees his children through skewed eyes. He sees them as washed in the blood of Jesus. Have joy. He's singing over you, his child. Maybe you say, I don't feel close enough to God. I don't feel this connection that he could sing over me and have joy in me. To that, verse 15 and verse 17 say, the Lord is in your midst. He is with you. He is singing over you, his chosen, precious child. Maybe you'd say, I know God's forgiven me, but I just feel the weight of my sin. I feel the guilt of my sin, the shame of my sin. To which verse 19 says, At that time I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame to praise. The God of the universe will sing over you with joy. I think about how God will sing over you with joy and we will experience the fullness of this at the second coming. That's something that we can look forward to and have joy knowing that that promise is sure and it will come. But yet we look for joy so much in this world. And when we look for our joy here on world, here on earth, we get joy on earth. We get this temporal, not lasting joy. 
when I think back of just a timeline of my life, it's really a good um, picture of how always looking for more joy, always looking for something else in this world, just not to be satisfied. I have memories all the way back to preschool of just wanting to be in school full day, just to get to kindergarten and wanting to be in middle school so I could switch classes and go to different teachers, just to want to be in high school and get a driver's license, just to want to get to college and move out and be on my own, just to want to be married and thinking that that's going to be the fullness of my joy, just wanting to have kids because knowing that that would be, just wanting and just the nature of us in always looking and striving to find joy in this world. But what we acknowledge in this season of Advent is what Christ did for us in coming, in dying, is reason to have joy. What he's doing in us of dissolving the strife away, purifying us and sanctifying us, is reason to have joy in the promise of him coming again. And this, what we experience here, the pains and sting of sin in this world, will go away. And that is reason to have joy. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what Advent is all about. In the Mulder household, we are Christmas ready. We've got Christmas trees. Trees. I lost that fight with Jody a long time ago. We've got stockings. We've got Christmas decorations. We're going to holiday parties. We are wrapping presents. We are doing everything. But you know what happens on Christmas morning is invariably one of the kids will open up a present. We always make them shake it and guess what it is. Somebody will guess iPod, four-wheeler, iPhone, some far-off thing that we're not going to get them for Christmas. And they open up that present and there's a level of disappointment. Or then Christmas is done, and we're all excited to put all the decorations out, to get everything set up, but then the Christmas season is over. And what happens? Who's excited to pull the decorations down? Who's excited to take the tree down? There's this Christmas hangover that we're left with, that we just don't feel the joy and excitement. That really illustrates the point well of Christ came. That's what we celebrate in Christmas. But there's some level of a letdown. We're left looking to see the fullness of our hope, the fullness of our peace, the fullness of our joy, and to really experience the fullness of God's love when he returns. And we long for that. We know that we are going to have Billions and billions of years to celebrate and to enjoy the fullness of God's joy. And it will be as great billions of years as it was the first day that we see him. And I don't understand why that is. I don't, I can't fathom that. I can't, I don't know how I'm not going to get bored after billions of years. But I know that God is true and his promises are true and that I won't. So we see a final promise in verse 20, and it says that he will bring you in. We're going to be brought in to the presence of God, and that is when we will experience the fullness of our joy. So as we sit 
and feel that tension of Advent of the already but not yet. We have joy where we are right now. We rejoice that Christ has conquered death. We rejoice that he's purifying our speech, that shame is going away, that he's humbling us and pride is being dissolved away. And in that we have joy. We're not scared of evil like those who don't have hope. We see that it's losing its power on us, but we feel the sting of sin in this world. We have joy knowing that God will deal with our oppressors, we see in verse 19. That he'll gather the outcast and that God's people will be known in all the earth. And at that time, he will bring you in. So we echo the way that John concludes the book of Revelation. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. So as we have joy in what Christ has done through the first advent, we have joy in what he's doing, working in our lives. Look forward and realize when we're tempted to not have joy in this world, that there will be a day when Christ will come again and we will experience the fullness of joy.